Welcome to You in the Ring. I'm your co-host, Salma Hassan. And I'm the producer of You in the Ring, Maureen Chow. For our first episode, we're talking about racism on campus and representing people of color here at UVic. We would like to acknowledge with respect that the University of Victoria stands on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasanich people. We'd like to thank the elders and chiefs of these territories for continuously allowing us to reside here, although many of us were not invited to do so. As a radio station and media outlet, CFUV was founded in colonial contexts and still continues to operate in those contexts. Just about everyone featured on this episode is a person of color, and racism is an ongoing issue that we experience in our daily lives on campus and beyond. We value these stories and feel the importance to bring these issues to light. Foundation is a play produced by Megan Husani Chandler as a part of SATCO, the student alternative theater company here at UVic. They put on productions by students for students. In this play, the word foundation refers to the makeup product and also to Western beauty standards and the racism it stems from. Following its debut in February, Foundation was voted UVic SATCO's pick of the season by the department. The original production was remounted and made possible by support from the UVic Human Equity and Human Rights Department, as well as Antidote, Victoria's grassroots network for empowering multiracial girls and women. Here is a two-minute audio recreation of the play. I never got into makeup because I knew that I would not be able to find a foundation that matched my skin color. When I walk into a Sephora, I feel less like I'm going into a makeup store and more like I'm going into a Starbucks to buy a drink. Why is it that Katie gets to be porcelain and I have to be a mocha? And if I do, they have all these names like chocolate or honey or caramel or Brazil nut, walnut, hazelnut, mahogany, Swiss nut mixed with chocolate swirls and hot chocolate chocolate and whipped cream with sprinkles on top. What does nude mean? Because I thought nude meant naked, but apparently nude means white or beige, I guess. Have you ever looked at a pair of nude tights? When I was in dance, I used to be able to wear black tights, but then they changed the policy so I had to wear nude tights to fit in with everybody else. I mean, I fit in with them, but I didn't look right with myself, and I looked like a gradient scale. Nude tights, nude lipsticks, nude camisoles, nude... On top of that, when I went to go prom dress shopping, it was the height of nude fashion, so I could not find a dress that looked good on me. I had to go from store to store to store, so I finally went to the store owner, this wonderful guy and his woman, where I found a beautiful but expensive pink dress. Have you ever looked at band-aids? How come when... Katie gets a boo-boo, it gets to melt into her flesh, but if I get an ouchie on my arm, everyone can see it from three miles away. Do you know that I can get Spongebob or Darth Vader or the goddamn Kardashians on my arm before I can get a band-aid in my own skin color? You know what? I know why this is. It's because band-aids are made in a skin color that's normal. And normal normal does does not include me. So I have with me here some members of the cast of Foundation and the director, Megan Chandler. You know more about this than I do. Tell us about this play. Uh, The show is called Foundation. It's an exploration of how Western and Eurocentric beauty standards affect young people of color. It was initially devised for SATCO Student Alternative Theatre Company in the UVic Theatre Department, The Nature of Applied Theatre is not coming in with a script but rather coming in with a lot of research and a lot of lived experiences and improvising around them that eventually getting to some 
a show that looks like some polished improv. The nature of this show in particular, it was episodic, so each scene kind of stood on its own. Talking to a lot of my friends of color in the department, we noticed that there wasn't a lot of representation uh, and that no one was really talking about it. There were certainly a lot of microaggressions towards people of color going on. And we were always taught that theater was a weapon. So we decided to use theater as a weapon to get this voice out there, to start a conversation and to show our experiences so, so we could change things in the department and hopefully change a lot. Thank you, Megan. And this next question is for you, Rahat. Tell me about what it's like to play this role while having experienced so many of these things in real life. Truthfully, for an applied theater show like this, especially one um, with that touches on subjects that are so personal, um, it was less so about separating the two and more so about finding the strength in in the unity of the two. So. I definitely found my own experiences with racism or with internalized racism or beauty standards as they apply to, for myself, an Indian woman, really helped in the creation process. So when we make a scene about Fair and Lovely, which is a skin whitening product very popular in India and other parts of the world, that's something I dealt with in real life. And that's that experience of, of thinking that my skin is too dark and wanting to lighten it, wanting to bleach it that personal experience brings forward a truth about a lot of people in the world who deal with uh, with internalized racism like that. And I think having having that for this character, who was really just me, who was just an Indian woman, <laughs> alive and well on a, on a stage, I think made it stronger. Thank you. And Lana, I have a question for you as well. Touching on what Megan said about just being informed and knowledgeable you're the only non-person of color (laughs) how do you present yourself as the character on stage but also for you internally what's your experience been like to really understand the positions of the other actors I saw myself a bit as something that was there to to help express something that I really wanted to be a part of and my lack of knowledge in this area I think helped um, helped me be really open. I just sort of walked in the room knowing that I had everything to learn. But yeah, just listening. Listening is the first step. And not walking in feeling guilty. Not walking in Absolutely. feeling like I have something to prove. Walking in feeling like I have everything to learn. Wonderful. And this is a question for all three of you. How it, was the audition process like? And how does this differ from a more conventional play so i asked people to bring uh to bring an article a news article about anything and perform it in any way that they please the idea of these pressures that people of color have to live through growing up in a world where the ideal beauty is whiteness this is something that not a lot of white people know about and certainly they don't think about it on a regular basis so the idea was to make this kind of these experiences front page news. And for the actors, what were some of your experiences walking in, especially to produce this living newspaper, all the while knowing how real all of this is? Well, walking into the, the um, audition, for instance, I had done, you know, some research, just, just found a, an article, and my news article was about somebody who had come to, as an 
illegal immigrant, I suppose, to, um, I think it was California, and been turned away and, and actually locked up. Um, but he couldn't go back to his own country for fear of violence against his um, sexual orientation. And instead of being accepted into the U.S., he was, he was locked up. So when he was finally released, he spent, I think it was 48 hours, trekking through the snow across the Canadian border. And this was 2016. And it was actually him and someone else. And people wouldn't stop to pick them up until finally. But he made it, and he was so thankful. So I put that into a poem, and I already, I already had the feeling that this was visceral and real, that we were taking bits of news, bits of reality, and um, creating something completely true. So up until, I think, the day of uh, the audition, I had nothing. Um, I knew I wanted to be a part of the show, and uh, I had no idea what I wanted to say or what I wanted to do. And this was sort of, I think it was right after the incident where um, the recently elected president of the United States, he had recently been really terrible to the parents of a slain soldier who happened to be Muslim and uh, said things about the soldier's mom. But he basically pointed out the fact that she was silent during um, a speech where her husband was, was speaking and pointed to the fact that maybe she wasn't allowed to speak. He made a lot of really shitty <laughs> assumptions about her and about their family dynamic and about their culture in general. And I took that news article and I too, like Lana, uh, turned it into a poem, not the article. I took my reaction and turned it into a poem. And I've never written a poem in my damn life, but I wrote this poem and uh, it was like a spoken word poem and it was about being silent. And it was about how as brown women, not only is silence expected of us, but when we are silent, it's mocked and things are assumed of us. And I didn't expect to have such a, such a visceral reaction to the content. I didn't expect to be emotional during my audition. But afterwards, I remember feeling so proud of this poem I wrote because it represented truth and connecting the real news, real things that were happening in the world to this audition piece even felt like something that at this time in our world right now is not just important because we're artists and we want to share art. It's important because not talking about things like that would be painful. Thank you for that. I have one more question about the audition process. It's not of this play, but just about works that you've been involved with in general. Do you ever feel aspects of racism coming across to you from other directors, other people? I know with this play, all of you are playing a person of color, or at least your own ethnicity for the first time. What are your thoughts on this? And what have some of your experiences been auditioning with roles that do not allow you to be a person of color? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's really fun and it's really freeing to get to be yourself. And because it's um, applied theater, it's very just like true stories on your own self. So you are playing a person of color and you're also playing yourself all at once, which is really, really beautiful. Um, in regards to auditioning in other places, I, I auditioned once and they were looking for a black female. So I was like, sure. 
I'll do it. And then we did like another applied theater piece, which was cool. They were kind of like, you should do this monologue because she's like a ghetto person and you can do it. And I was like, ah, yikes. <laughs> but I was young. I didn't know any better. And I just hated myself the whole time. But now I know that that, that, was, that was horrible. Um, so, yeah, you know, good and bad. Working out the kinks and seeing what we can do. But I feel like, I mean, Rahad always says this, so I'm just going to steal her <laughs> words, that when you're acting and you're playing a person no matter what you're always playing that person as a person of color and the person of color that you are like you you will always be on stage as a black woman or an Indian woman and so it's just how you can connect all of that together. Is that something you see a lot in the theater universe now more people standing up for who they are and not being forced into these roles as you were saying? I definitely think so. I think it's still like a an upwards battle and I think Victoria is a lot more behind than, say, Toronto or bigger cities. But I think this is a really good, like, revolutionary time, and we're just, we're so tired, you know? And we just, so, yeah, it, it's it's a work in progress. Thank you. I, I would be wary of saying that I've experienced a lot of uh, racism from other directors. It's more so that there is a definite neglect towards the fact that I am a woman of color, and about what my presence, my visibility as a woman of color on stage says about the piece that I'm in or it says about the character that I'm playing. And because um, I think for a long time I was trying to ignore it. And I think that's what I've been dealing with a lot from directors as well is people being blind to it. If you say that you don't see race, you're lying. <laughs> so, so I think I've been dealing with what it means for me to be a brown woman, an Indian woman playing this character on stage. What does that say about the character that I'm playing? What does it say about the play that I'm in? What does it say about the world of the play? And it may say a good thing, may say a bad thing. It doesn't, that's really up to me. And it may not say anything to the audience sometimes, but it has to say something to me and it has to say something to the director. And I've definitely felt in a lot of the productions that I've been, that I've been in, that my presence as uh, a woman of color in a cast or in a, in a production is is more often than not just kind of brushed aside and I was actually reading this really cool thing um, about visibility and because I do some stand-up comedy um, I was listening I was watching this interview with um, Cameron Esposito and her wife Rhea Butcher about being visibly queer on stage uh, as stand-up comedians and they were talking about how when a white man says is political it's because he's saying political things but for visible minorities taking up space on stage is a political act and i think that really resonates with me so my presence on a stage means something i have one last question this one is for you megan what's next for foundation and what do you think of this being spread to as many people as possible i had no idea it was going to be so successful, touch so many people, let, let alone win the SATCO Play Festival last year. And then it was in early October, we got it remounted at UVic again. So this play, it isn't dying, <laughs> which is wonderful. And I, I don't know exactly what the future of it would be. We're certainly open to performing again. Uh, the scenes stand on their own so there's certainly possibility that you know things can be performed individually and it's I still see it as a changing work and 
it belongs to the cast now so I I don't know for sure I feel like I'm really not giving a good answer but it's certainly a work that if it is performed again I hope that we can have conversations that it meets the right people I'm happy that it's out there so they're just gonna speak for what it is and it has so much to say thank you Maureen. <laughs> thank you to Amber Nice, Megan, Rahat, and Lena for being here Thank you. as well. And I just wanted to mention the other members of the cast. Yes, I have the whole list right here. So we have a very, very big creative team. Director Megan Chandler, <laughs> stage manager Leah Anthony, assistant stage manager Emma Jo Conlon, costume designer Rachel Levy, lighting designer Jackson Marin, sound designers Natasha Guerra and Olivia Wheeler, marketer Hannah Bell. The ensemble consists of Lana Lampson, Brittany Macquarie, Ted Angelo Nakayon, Rahat Sani, Anne Bernice Thomas, Hilary Wheeler, and Taryn Yoneda. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Dr. Jeff Korntassel is head of the Indigenous Governance Graduate Programs here at UVic. I sat down with him to talk about what this means and how students and faculty members from this program have contributed to the resurgence of Indigenous lands and cultures. Here's what he had to say. Osio Nigara, Aya Gano Lido Dakwadoa, Jaligi Eyetli Egwena Sa'i, Echoda Galski Goi. So my name is Jeff Korntassel. Uh, my Cherokee name is Ganoholido, which means hunter, and uh, I'm from the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. And so I'm currently the Director of Indigenous Governance at the University of Victoria, and I also am an Associate Professor in the program as well. So primarily teach master's students and PhD students about Indigenous leadership, governance, and resurgence. What is Indigenous governance and what role does it play in our society? I think Indigenous governance are kind of the, they can be the formal as well as the informal actions that we undertake to promote the health and well-being of our communities. And so governance is all about, uh, in a sense, governing and nurturing those relationships that keep us healthy. And so uh, that's kind of a broad version. So governance can look like, governance isn't always institutions. Uh, so governance can look like um, managing reef net fisher- fisheries, for example. Managing camas on the land is a form of governance. As well, you think about our ceremonies as governance. So I think governance is, is vital to basically, as I mentioned earlier, the health and well-being of indigenous nations and communities. And in a sense, it's, it's what links us to uh, our land, uh, our language, our culture, our communities. There's a lot of community and water-based learning in this program as well. Can you speak a little bit on that and give some examples of what this entails? Sure, sure. Um, I'd, we'd love to do a lot more than we currently do. We, so our goal is to kind of shift into more of a land-based, uh, water-based uh, program in the future. Uh, but for now, we, a lot of our land-based activities are in the mentorship class. And so, uh, for example, this week we went to Sartlip First Nation and we worked with Project Reclaim, which uh, is led by Bianca Elliott, who's from Sartlip. And 
basically Bianca led us to an area where uh, they're basically reclaiming the land and restoring it to uh, restoring the Gary Oak ecosystem. And so uh, we're talking about pulling out invasive species like ivy, um, not as much Scottish broom, but some other types of grasses. So the Gary Oak e- ecosystem, and in this case, we're talking about camas, we're talking about uh, hakmeen, which is basically other, otherwise known as Indian celery. We're talking about other types of plants that, that can flourish if these invasives are pulled out. And so uh, Bianca is, is basically leading this. It's, it's a youth um, program. But in this case, she brought uh, older folks like me in and as well as, as some of our students to, to engage in this kind of work. So that's one example. Uh, the other longer term example has been uh, my involvement with uh, Cheryl Bryce's um, uh, led and, and she created the Lekwungen Community Toolshed. And so that uh, has a similar aim in that it's indigenous and non-indigenous people that go to uh, basically places on her homeland that her family's been managing for generations, and we pull invasives. And we also find ways to, in some cases, replant um, camas, quetlal, uh, which is a, a basically a staple food and, and um, used to be a huge trade item up and down the coast. And so it, the goal is to revitalize food systems uh, for the Songhees and the Squamalt and Wasanich uh, nations. This is very obviously a very unique program for people to be able to partake in as part of their graduate studies. What's the process like with students? I noticed that you take in Indigenous students and people that do not come from an Indigenous background. So what type of people are you looking for when sure. you get the applications that come in every year? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think we, the majority of the students in the class are always indigenous. So we don't have a threshold, you know, in terms of how many, but uh, we usually take in, so ours is a cohort model. So that means that we, we really want these students to come together and bond fairly quickly, right over the course of a, basically their one year program of study. And so they're taking pretty intense courses on indigenous research methods, indigenous governance, uh, the mentorship course, which is a year-long course, uh, indigenous resurgence, indigenous self-determination, as well as an, an elective. And so to pick the right students, we have to kind of see where their interests align with uh, ours. And so, you know, do they have community experience? Do they have, have they taken a lot of courses on indigenous history, on indigenous you know, policy, uh, on indigenous, um, you know, kind of topics? And, you know, also, are they, uh, are they ready to engage in this really rigorous program? So are they, are they ready to do the kind of the intensive writing and reading that needs to be done? Uh, so, yeah, that kind of, it's a, it's a challenging program. And then I think deeper than all of that is it really a commitment to resurgence, right? A commitment to decolonizing practices and kind of a willingness to take a really hard look at yourself and examine you know the ways in which you can improve right so it's kind of a, like a self-inventory um, and so that's asking a lot of people so we have to take in people that are really ready to in, engage in that kind of uh, I guess you call it a journey or engage in that kind of challenge uh, so that they can work for or work with uh, indigenous communities to uh, to promote these things to promote 
you know, better indigenous governance to promote the self-determination of, of indigenous nations. Of course, and I imagine that you really can't be someone who just sits behind a computer as you could in a lot of other university programs as well. Um, what are some standout projects that you've seen come through um, through students here, ones that really stick out? Sure. Um, there's amazing projects that have come out of this. And I should say that uh, one thing we did about five years ago is we eliminated the thesis as an option for finishing your degree. So that was, that was kind of, a, uh, I guess, a leap of faith for us. It was kind of deciding where our priorities, priorities were. So instead of a thesis, you do a community governance project. And the governance project is basically the student can go anywhere in the world that they want and work with any indigenous nation or community or organization that they want, that they're interested in. And the idea is that they bring their talents with them and lend their talents to a particular project. So uh, we've had students that have made films because they're, you know, they're really good filmmakers. Uh, we've had students that have um, written grants, right, for McCullough Housing. And so the, the projects are just incredible. Uh, some of the, the ones that stand out, one of the first ones, one of the first defenses I went to was for Nick Claxton, and he did it on ReefNet Fisheries. And we held the defense in the community in uh, Sayout, First Nation. And at the end of that defense, basically folks said that they were going to go to Nick as a new authority or a kind of new leader in the area of ReefNet Fisheries. And to me, that was incredible. And so since that time, I mean, that had a real transformative impact on Nick, but as well as the community. Since that time, Nick has actually created a reef net and he fished um, in the Salish Sea using that reef net uh, about two years ago. And he's going to do it again this summer. So incredible work. And he's gone on for his Ph.D. So that's just one example. The other some of the other standouts have been uh, we've had folks that have done graphic novels. And so those graphic narratives, you know, like Australia Waitung from uh, Anishinaabe, um, Russ Ross uh, from uh, Chilcotin, right, that have done these amazing graphic novels. Um, one of the more recent ones was uh, Melina Labakan Massimo from Cree, Lubakan Cree, and she installed 80 uh, pole-mounted solar panels on her on our reserve. And that those solar panels actually run the health center Right. And so her reserve is right near the tar sands and is impacted by it every day. And so this was a huge statement, right, to the folks in the community that we have these renewable energies at, at play here. And she installed them. And that one was exceptional in that she actually had to do fundraising, which isn't usually the case. So she fundraised for it. She got the money and put this into place. And has developed a toolkit as well for people that want to engage in this kind of work uh, in their own community. So amazing work, right? We've had people that have uh, started radio stations in Chiam First Nation, for example, uh, that have documented um, interactions with the Department of Fisheries that are that have become uh, that have be, been problematic or even violent, right? So using using that database, Chiam First Nation was able to. Uh, to make a case, right, for um, you know, for being able to fish more freely on the on the Fraser River. So, all these things are meant to be put into practice in the community, and 
um, it's not like a thesis in the sense that it doesn't just sit on a shelf. It's actually put immediately into use. We've had people like, um, they're all coming back to me now, Kirsten Lindquist, right, who's Korean, uh, and uh, Métis, who developed curriculum for the Native Youth uh, Sexual Health Network. And this curriculum is all about uh, engaging in safe sexual behavior uh, with youth, right? And so that curriculum is... Um, has been put into place by the you know Native Youth Sexual Health Network, and so all these things, um, you know, it's hard to even imagine the impact that all these different projects have had. But we get a glimpse of it when we see the defenses, right? And people uh, from the community come to these defenses. Sometimes we Skype them in. Sometimes we're there in person. Uh, but wherever they occur, they're. Uh, it shows the the high stakes that these things have, you know, and and in community, some of them are language revitalization projects. Maddie Metallic uh, from uh, Mi'kmaq, right, um, recently defended on a language project, a language curriculum that she developed, right, in community. So all these things are just, you know, just incredible, and they have uh, such a huge and lasting impact in community. So that's our. You know, if we're talking about governance, right, these are the tools of governance. And these these projects have become much more than just projects, right? They're actually, they're forms of diplomacy in some ways, right? They're forms of engagement in real meaningful issues. Yeah. I know you touched on this briefly, but I wanted to come back to that, is on arts and culture and language particularly and how this relates back. Obviously there's the sustaining the environment and the consciousness, but what are some of the more cultural aspects that are constantly being engaged with when someone takes on this program? Yeah, I, I guess I realized too, I didn't do really a territorial acknowledgement at the start, which I normally do. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just do that quickly and because that ties into what I'm going to say. So. Yeah, I've been uh, been here since 2003, and living on uh, Lekwungen or Songhees and Esquimalt First Nation, as well as Wasanich uh, uh, First Nation territory. And you know, when we do these acknowledgments, uh, I think a lot of times you know folks will read off an acknowledgment or or provide this acknowledgment in a classroom setting or in a in a meeting, and then it's it's over, right? There's the acknowledgement itself doesn't seem to be infused into the actual activity that's that's being engaged in. So I think, you know, one of the things that our program tries to do is create an awareness of, you know, how how does it, this acknowledgement inform our behavior? How does this acknowledgement actually lead us to undertake certain activities over others in terms of promoting the health and well-being of the peoples of this territory, but also the land? in the water of this territory and the, you know, the plants and the, the animal nations. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, I think back to and, you know, was a, a visit to Unistoten camp. It was back in, uh, I guess it's 2014. And Unistoten camp is part of the Wissotan First Nation. And so Frida Houston and Togestai have basically been protecting this area from encroachment by logging companies and by other oil and gas extractions. Um, and so one of the protocols that we undertook when we went to Unistoten camp is that you 
sit on the other side of the bridge, on the other side of the river, and you honk and you wait for someone to come across the bridge. And they ask you three questions. And these three questions to me tie into uh, our protocols and also the importance of our, of our program as well. Uh, first is, you know, who are you? You know, what's your name? Do you work for, you know, who do you work for? Do you work for government or industry? Then the third question is, how will your visit here benefit the land and community? And that third question is really the question that under, kind of undergirds the program of iGov in some ways. Like, how will your time here in iGov benefit not only the Songhees and Esquimalt and Wasanich First Nations in some way, but also how will it benefit your own community if you're going back to a particular community? And if you're not from a particular community, how will it benefit indigenous peoples? And so those are the kinds of maybe deeper questions we have about, you know, going beyond just an acknowledgement. And it's acknowledgements are important. I don't want to demean the or diminish the importance of that. But you know, the subsequent actions around that, how does that inform your action? How will your time here benefit the land and the community? And so uh, for, for our program, it's about understanding protocols. So understanding particular protocols in Songhees, for example, around food, around engaging in respectful research practices, engaging with elders, even learning the language, even walking on the territory. How do, how do you engage with, with the land here in a respectful way and in a way that benefits uh, you know, community? So a lot of our program is, is designed to point out aspects of resurgence, aspects where you know, people are engaging in these important language revitalization efforts, where they're engaging in the regeneration of you know, land-based activities, land-based cultural activities, water-based activities, uh, but it's also about uh, ultimately, um, you know, those radiating responsibilities, how those responsibilities start with you and they emanate out uh, to your family, to your relations, and to the people of this territory. Thank you. And for our listeners, Dr. Corntassel is also an extremely active academic researcher and author as well. And so I'm going to turn it a little bit more specifically to you and can you speak about some of your personal projects and writings that are in progress or that you've completed because I'm seeing a lot of these ideas from those writings come back into this conversation as well. Sure yeah I think um, the latest project that we just finished was a collaboration with um, some of our Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiian uh, colleagues at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and so Noalani Goodyear, Kaupua, uh, Noinoi Silva, and Hokulani Aikau, as well as some IGA faculty, uh, so Tayage Alfred and Debbie Messina. And we're all co-editors of, the, of this massive work uh, called Everyday Acts of Resurgence. And it came about from an exchange we had with the University of Hawaii back in 2015. And while we're there, we're talking about PICO, which in, Hawaii, in the Hawaiian language means your umbilical cord, but in a deeper sense, it's where you're centered, right? What's your center? And so we talked about that, and we talked about that in relation to people's you know, places and practices. And so that in, has informed the book. So we have 22 contributions in the book, and I challenged everyone who contributed to write 1,500 words or less, so short pieces that are going to be read, less jargon, 
and 10 citations or less. So it was a challenge for a lot of folks, but I think what we have is a really nice, readable, accessible work that covers a whole range. So we have Maori scholars in this in this volume. We have Nick Claxton, who I mentioned earlier from from Sayout First Nation, talking about reef net fisheries. Uh, we have Lisa Strayline from IATSIS in Australia, and you know we have we have several other uh, First Nations, you know scholars that are and and activists that are engaged in this work and so i'm excited about this piece because i'm increasingly looking to the everyday uh, the things that we do every day that are often unseen and unacknowledged that are significant right in terms of regenerating and uh, nurturing our our community you know health and well-being and so it's really in the everyday that you know these things are often ignored or are, you know, uh, not seen as significant. And yet, you know, oftentimes we focus on large-scale protests. We focus on whether it's Idle No More, whether it's, you know, other protests around, uh, you know, Colton Bushi and, and Tina Fontaine, and those are significant, but not to the exclusion of the things that we do every day. When I speak to my daughter every day in Cherokee language, right, that matters. That makes a big difference in terms of uh, how she's going to relate to the world and even how I relate to the world. So we learn about these intimate relationships that we have with the land, with the with the culture in places like the living room or at the kitchen table, right? And in places like in ceremonial places. That's where we're, we're learning and we practice and we engage in those forms of renewal uh, as a people. So why not talk about that? Why not talk about the ways in which we do things every day that is that are unacknowledged and need to be need to be held up as as important parts of who we are as indigenous peoples. So so that's the latest work. And then a future work is on sustainability and climate change. So indigenous notions of sustainability. And that's gonna be a, a future project that I'm that I'm looking at. And I've already interviewed some Kanaka Maoli from the Big Island who are doing amazing work on just sustainable practices and you know when you think of sustainability you know Cherokee Nation for example has been sustainable since you know for over 10,000 years and so what has it what has it been uh, what fat what factors or what aspects of our nation have been so incredibly resilient and so incredibly powerful that have perpetuated us for all these years Right? And so that's what I want to get at are some of those features. And a lot of it for me is how we share knowledge with, with future generations and, and vice versa, like how future generations share knowledge with, with old timers like myself, right? That, you know, it's not a one-way flow of information. So, you know, how are the young folks teaching us how to live as Cherokee or as, as Wasainich or, or as, you know, Songhees people? And so, so that's my, my future project. And yeah, it's all grounded in resurgence, ultimately, you know, that, that kind of, um, you know, um, I guess regeneration of our land and community and culture in ways that um, then inform our, our relationships. It goes so much further beyond the headlines. And I definitely think that's something that goes unacknowledged a lot of the time. And I have two questions to kind of lead into that. The first one being, what are some productive ways that non-Indigenous people can 
try and learn about your culture or indigenous cultures overall in a way that is effective and respectful, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's that's always a tougher question for me because I I don't like to prescribe you know certain actions, right? And so I think a lot of it is to you know to listen, right? and to learn from other peoples of this land. And, you know, there's, um, Lynn Gell has written, she's an Algonquin uh, uh, scholar. She's written this um, basically allied bill of responsibilities. And I think things like that are useful to look at, to see, I think she's got 18 points or so of, you know, how to be a good ally. I have problems with the word ally sometimes, uh, especially self-appointed allies. So. But I think that's a good conversation to start at, right? Is what are these features, right? That that I should embody if I'm not from this territory, right? If I, or if I'm a, a settler, a non-indigenous person. So, what what are those features that that should be embodied? And for me, it's about um, finding ways to lend your talents to indigenous struggles when needed, right? So. If you're great at organizing rallies, great, you know, make yourself available. Uh, if you're great at uh, helping with um, gardening, great, you know, make yourself available. Find ways to lend your talents to, uh, to community conversations. And, to co- and I think this is where I can't state this enough, like it's going to take a long time, right, to establish these relationships. So be patient, finding ways into the conversation but, but not imposing yourself, right, on indigenous nations. So, uh, and on elders and other youth, right, that are already overtaxed, oversubscribed. So finding ways into the conversation in a respectful way, learning about the protocols and taking the time to get to know people before you start jumping to a research project or a collaboration or whatever it is that your agenda might be and being honest I think being open and honest about your agenda as well yeah. you know, like if you have an agenda and you you want to if your agenda as a non-indigenous person is to become the best carver in the country state that up front right so when you're meeting indigenous carvers you know or you know people that are working with with these materials that they know what you're coming with. And by that same token, how you locate yourself, right? Uh, knowing, do you know your history and your culture, right, of your own family? And so the Cher- Cherokees have a saying, you know, learn to live in a longer now, learn your history and your culture and understand that that's part of who you are now. So having that sense of, of connection to your own culture, if it just happens to be Canadian, right, go deeper than that. What is that, you know, where did your family come from? And what is, what is their history? Know your own history before kind of imposing your views on other people's histories, other people's living histories, and other people's kind of uh, cultural outlooks. If you ever want to... Through their work with local Indigenous communities, Dr. Corntassel and the Indigenous Governance Program will continue honoring Indigenous ways of knowing through experience and active involvement. The work they do is significant for people from these cultures. And as people of color ourselves, we support their initiatives as we fight against discrimination and white privilege. There are three things that are certain in life. Death, taxes, and racism. 
Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to trivialize the discrimination that people of color go through. Being a minority means you will most likely have experienced prejudice. Discrimination happens even on this supposedly diverse and accepting institution of higher education. So we talked to Musa Magasa, the human rights education advisor at UBIC. He has some ideas about combating racism in all of its forms, and they start with recognizing the roots of this discrimination. Let's listen in on what he had to say, starting with how racism exists in our lives. My name is Musa Magasa, and uh, I work here on campus as a human rights educator or a human rights education advisor. So my work, I will say, is to, to contribute or to help educate the university campus around the issues of human rights, equity, discrimination, harassment, you know, and their corollaries, you know, such as anything that has the ism. Uh, I see myself as uh, someone who, do, who does a work with other people because I believe that you know, human rights work can't be done in isolation. It has to be done in partnership. It has to be done you know, uh, through networks and uh, through social, as a social change agent. So my work is not only to be doing things but it is also to do things with people and it is also to support groups who do, who do human rights work and individuals who want to do social justice or human rights work so you can see that it is very multifaceted it has a lot of uh, direction it can go but at the end of the day it is to contribute to a welcoming inclusive campus community so this is, uh, in a nutshell, what I do. Our societies have been constructed on racism, have been justified on racism, on Eurocentric views, on colonization, and anyism. That we can't dismiss that it doesn't exist, but we can't also pretend, and I heard a lot of this, oh, Nowadays, racism is in a recrudescence. People say, no, we have less racism. No. We might have less reporting. And the reporting might not be because people don't want, but because they are tired, because they are scared, because they are hurt. But racism is still prevalent because our society, its foundation are created and built on racism and race. It is built on imperialism and colonialism and all the so racism exists. Racism exists in three things. It is first in the way we have been brought up, education. It is the way we are socialized and we live. But racism is, exists also at the institutional and the systemic level in any society. And I don't think our society is one that can say we don't have it. So that's a reality. Uh, policies institutions, programs, everything can contribute to racism. And uh, that's a reality. A few years ago, uh, there was uh, research done by a professor at UVK called uh, Dr. Charlotte Chalier. And she was looking at prejudice on university campuses. And it was part of a, a multi-country research in Canada and Europe. And her research, she went and interviewed a Muslim student, Jewish student, you know, a mainstream student, 
international student and it really showed that definitely prejudice whether it is racial prejudice or it is religious prejudice or other prejudices are not uh, you know still exists on campus still exists in our society and this is a reality so my work as you can see that uh, cut out for you. it is cut here because mm. there is everything we have to work to change and i do believe in change and i do think and know that there is changes possible it is just we need more voices talking about needing more voices it is where i go back now to talk about uh, what can we do against racism and other intersection which is very important mm -hmm. i want to insist that if we just focus on racism only we will be missing the point because the intersection of race and other dimension of our diversity are so intertwined that we can't tackle racism alone we have to tackle for example racism and what what make racism happen colonialism imperialism eurocentrism orientalism islamophobia anti-semitic so there is a lot so you can understand why i insist on uh, intersectionality mm -hmm. so that's one thing to to look at the other things we look at or i will say when we tackle racism and this is very important for me it is first to deconstruct the terminology to deconstruct the terminology to unlearn what we know about racism so that's like a, a small reminder that someone could do is to break down the terminology you're about to go into? Yeah. yeah. Breaking down the terminology of racism is to look at everything that is connected to racism and understand that those intersectionality are important to take into account when we study, when we're talking, when we're educating about racism. It is, for example, to denounce the historical, the social, the political, the ideological and the context of race and racialization which is the thinking of race the colonization slavery you know so the systemic context of racism need to be known to be understood and also to be denounced with all its linkages it is to recognize and to critically denounce white privilege to denounce and to dismantle those kind of mindsets you know where privilege and power, you know, blind us to see and understand that everything is not rosy for everyone. Dog Zen it means to redefine our relationships as human beings. It is to unhurt the truth about ourselves and about those relationships. And it is to acknowledge the lies that has been buried in those conversations and why, you know, they have been held up until now. Uh, one of the interesting lie I have is someone telling me, for example, oh, all black people are good dancer. That's a lie. But this is a stereotype that has been cooked in the media. And every TV you turn, you see black people dancing. And it looks like all of us are good dancer. I'm not one of those guys. So uh, it is to denounce the context of Eurocentrism, ethnocentrism. To give voice and resources and agency to the people who have been 
impacted by racism. It is to insist on the economic justification of racism and to put the intersectionality at the center of the debate that racism is also interrelated to all the ism as I talked about it earlier on. Uh, how to encourage open mindset or open-mindedness? I say it is critically to critically to have critical, courageous conversation. I like to emphasize those words. They need to be critical, they need to be courageous, and they need to be conversation. I'm not talking about debate. Uh, we have to re-educate the educator. For me, that's crucial. Racism is not taken out of campus or on campus. It takes time and it takes place in the teaching, in the curriculum, and everything else. Educate the educator. It is to go to the faculty and the instructor. Re-educate those educators because I think the curriculum and the teaching can perpetuate those stereotypes. And that's the toughest piece. There is many of us on campus who talk about educating other people. But our language needs to be really, really revisited in our approaches. Uh, it is to deconstruct the curriculum, as I say. And finally, it is to maybe review and approach education from uh, what I will call a transformative civic education approach, which is, which is vertical approach to educating about racism that goes in this and not the top down. Uh, to support the grassroots organization and groups on campus, students, staff and faculty, uh, you know, and uh, to support them in all aspects of support, meaning not only acknowledgement, but also resources where possible. Looking at all these pictures, it is why our office, we have been working for years, because I have been on this campus for many years now. We have been addressing these issues through education, through policy, and through everything. But as you know, the world has been changing. The last year and a half, you know, what has changed on campus is just amazing because the interconnectedness of the issues are no longer isolated. UVic issues is no longer only UVic issues. They can be triggered by outside issues, even across the border or all the way to another continent. So we become mutually vulnerable to issues that happen everywhere. So the religious bigotry, racism, you know, intolerance, and everything that is being spit everywhere around the world is also, you know, tainting on our walls here. And one of the things that happened, as you know, last year, we had some cases where there have been outcry on campus, where there have been racial uh, posters, homophobic, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic. So those, our office have acknowledged them. And as we have been doing for many years, we also thought that we need to respond to that. I repeat, we need to respond. We don't react. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> we respond because our office, when we look at an issue on campus, we plan 
we design, we look to the root causes, we look at the partners, we look at how we're going to approach this in a very concerted way that really address the systemic roots of it. So that's the reason why one of the activity or one of the project we are right now working on is called the five days of action. It doesn't mean that there is only five days we will do anti-racism on campus and social justice. We're doing it every day, but we just fought to bring those five days to bring more. What it is, the purpose is to create meaningful and respectful dialogue around campus and around issues of equity, diversity, human rights, and to actively engage the campus community in concrete actions to end discrimination, harassment, sexualized violence, and as I said earlier on, all the ism. So this is what we try to do in the five days. And we say that the overarching theme of that week will be courageous conversation. You remember I was telling you about critical, courageous conversation. So during those days, this is what we're going to do. We're going to invite every partner on campus and work in collaboration as we do, as we have been doing, because the mandate of our office is in partnership with everyone. So we will do the same thing and work with different offices. So it will be a buzzing campus, we hope. And everywhere you go, there will be education, there will be interactions, there will be activities, you know, and all this will be courageously critical and focusing on all those ism and their intersections. So this is what is about the five days. What is happening on campus and around the world doesn't scare us. We know we can f we can address it because as a great man, Nelson Mandela said, education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change your world. And we believe by doing education, for example, through five days of action, we will be able to change the behavior, the attitude, and the beliefs that support and justify racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and all the ism. I remember reading an article many years ago, and the writer was saying, no one is born racist. No one is born homophobic. No one is born A, B, C. People become it. So that's, the, for me, this is where I want to plug the why. Why they become it? How they become it? You know? And then I have another how. It is how to unlearn, how to undo, you know, how to unbecome. So if we become something, we can unbecome it. You know? It doesn't mean by unbecoming something we lose anything. It just means we become even better. Though Musa admits that our daily lives, our societies, even our university have all been built on a foundation of prejudice, he does not deny his hope for a better future. And he helped us understand the steps we must take to make sure we can build that future. As Musa has eloquently expressed, the situation we find ourselves in is not specific to UVic. It's not specific to BC or even to Canada. Nor is this issue of racism a thing of the past. It still exists and it still affects us now. Without starting conversations, changing the system in which issues of race are taught, 
or recognizing our own privilege and intersections, changes cannot be made. Thank you so much to Musa for sharing his knowledge and his counsel with us. It really makes me feel at ease knowing he's working for this campus. The attitudes towards and treatment of minorities affects all of us on campus. As people of color ourselves, we're thankful for the opportunity to speak, but hope this can be a catalyst for change and not merely a statement of protest. Nothing changes unless this conversation is ongoing, no matter what form that may take. The theme music you heard in this episode was composed and performed by Toe. We also featured Winds of Change and I'll Rock You to the Rhythm of the Ocean from the album Native North American Volume 1. This episode was produced by myself, Maureen Chow, Arcade Pilot, Annabelle Budd, Dante Andre Cahan, and Max Collins. This program is created by our podcasting production team. If you'd like to get involved in spoken word programming here at CFUV, you can find more information at cfuv.ca.